This is the podcast of the German Historical Institute London, a research centre dedicated to supporting and connecting students and scholars from Britain and Germany. The podcast series presents current research in British, German and European history, as well as colonial and global history. For more information on the German Historical Institute London, future events, the GHIL Library, studentships and more podcast episodes, please visit our website at ghil.ac.uk. This podcast episode is a GHIL lecture by Avadendra Sharin, Director and Professor at the Center for the Study of Developing Societies in Delhi, entitled India's Atmospheric Modernity, Smoke, Particulate Matter and the Modern City. Around the mid-19th century, air pollution began to be discussed in India, especially in its largest cities, Calcutta and Bombay. The concern was with black smoke and the impact that this had on the quality of urban life, human health and economic efficiency. In time, visible smoke yielded to invisible particulate matter as a serious object of concern. And more recently, heat waves and extreme weather events have become significant public issues. Avadendra Sharin's lecture revisits these earlier historical concerns around air quality, underlining both their specificity and what lessons they have to offer to us in the age of the Anthropocene. Thank you. Thank you to ICAS for the opportunity to come here. Thank you to GHI for hosting this lecture. Thank you to all of you. It's a wonderful day out there. The room is not exactly as pleasant as outside. So <laughs> you have taken the time to be here. So thank you very much for that. What I'm doing currently is a project which is tentatively titled Atmospheres, a South Asian History. And in that, I look at three different elements. One is on climate and climate change. The other is going to be around particulate matter, which is some work that I've done before. And the third element is around germs and viruses, which is a more contemporary concern post-COVID that I've into this project. So what I'm going to do is take you through some parts of how this additional work that I'm doing for this project is going to shape up and also give you some details about work that I've done earlier. The first thing, this is a very well-known thesis uh, about the difference in nature between modern West and other parts of the world. It has several versions, this particular thesis. The person who's done the most work on this is a professor, David Arden. And what this thesis basically suggests, and this followed in the wake of very important work that Edward Said did on Orientalism. And it says that the way nature is looked at in the tropics and in the temperate world is there's a hierarchy. So the temperate nature is supposed to be good, productive. And elsewhere in the world, what you get is a tropical nature, which is full of disease and where there is a lot of heat and humidity. So it's not going to help you. And this is something that then makes a distinction not only between natures of different parts of the world, but nature then as translated into social qualities, type of human beings. And then you get this famous idea of the lazy Bengali, you know, because they live in these hot and humid climates and etc. So this is something that uh, is, uh, as I said, focused in two very different elements. One is this thing on heat and humidity. and the idea here is, for the most part, what has been studied is the ability of colonial powers to go into different parts of the world and establish themselves there. 
to live there for long in order that they can settle those parts. Now, in the case of India, and the reason why this is studied is that they find it very difficult to cope with this heat and humidity. And so there's a sense that this will not be a permanent empire, unlike say Australia, which is also very hot, but apparently the radiation is very different. So you could, and in fact, a lot of people go after serving in India to Australia to recover from the Indian heat. So there's this whole concern about heat and humidity and a movement of people around these concerns that happens. This is something that historians have more or less studied for the first part of the 19th century and earlier times. In my own work, I find that this is not quite gone away. So I was in the British Library earlier today. I came across this, this gentleman from 1820s writing to the Governor General saying, please sponsor my book which is on architecture in hot climates, because this is going to be very important for you. And then I find a letter from uh, Sir Baker, Herbert Baker, who was one of the, with Latians, one of the makers of New Delhi. He writes in 1946, never trust the planners, only come to architects because architects understand people who live in hot climates. And then I've seen stuff from the 1960s which is still grappling with this problem. What do you do with heat and how do you have cooling in these parts of the world? And the idea is that we, countries like India should never have air conditioning because we don't have the energy for it. This is in the 60s, this debate goes on. Do you have the energy in order to have air conditioning or should there be only passive cooling? In Singapore around the same time, they go for a full-fledged air conditioning as a condition to be able to be productive and work well. So they, these debates about heat and humidity that I suggest go on, continue into very much into our own times. And it's something that we haven't followed enough for how it continues to affect us today. The other, of course, is the more familiar thing that comes post-COVID. This is something that many parts of the world had forgotten, that there are infectious diseases that you have to live with, the germs and viruses in the air that you have to contend with. And people in India obviously had not fully lost sight of it because this was always around. But in many parts of the world, this had gone away. This is an image after the plague in late 19th century, where you can see this kind of what in today's language we will call social distancing. These patients' beds have been kept at a distance. Some of this was for propaganda. Uh, this is uh, Some of this was British propaganda of how well that handled that plague in 1890s. Some of it took the form of postcards sent back home, and some of it was actually designed in that manner. So this is the other part of it, the disease part of it. This is something that uh, I propose to you hasn't been taken enough into account when we think about air. You know, we tend to think about air pollution in terms of dust, particles, etc., but not these uh, biological pollutants. And this is something that I'm trying to build into my work. So these are the two things. And I'm calling this thing another tropicality. And the reason for that is, if you think about heat and humidity and about viruses, these are both quote-unquote about nature or were argued to be about nature. And in fact, even after you have this uh, kind of medical thinking that changes in the closing years of the 19th century, first decades of the 20th century, when you have a biomedical revolution that comes around, the idea that germs and climate are still linked, it doesn't go away. This one is very different because in the instance of smoke, we are not talking about nature. We are talking about something that has been produced by human activity. And it resonates in a very 
different way when you think about climate change, where so much of talk is about what have we done as humans to contribute to this climate change? Are we in the era of the Anthropocene? So this, I find an echo of some kind. Uh, I'm not very certain how to think through it as yet, but it is very clear that there is at the same time a concern, something that humans have done. And as you can see from the quote that I have put up, this is from 1908, in Western countries, this particular article is saying, there's a great deal of concern with domestic smoke. In India, that's not what matters. What is matters is these industries that are coming up and the smoke that they're producing. And that is something that we should be concerned about. These are very interesting quotes that I have. One is from Rudyard Kipling. And the reason I call it another tropicality is because in this one, it is not the difference that is being emphasized. It is how similar India and cities in this country are. So the first quote from Rudyard Kipling is, let us take our hats off to Calcutta, the many-sided, the smoky, the magnificent, etc., etc." No, not wholly foreign. Say rather too familiar. And similarly, in the second one, this is another from Times of India, in the neighborhood of the cotton mills in Bombay, the buildings are becoming as grimy as they're in Bolton or Preston. So this is like, it's too close. It's too much, too familiar, too much like our small towns like Leeds and Sheffield, etc., the industrial cities of England. And this is not what you want India to be. You have not gone all the way across oceans to rule a part of the world for it to begin to look too familiar to you, you know? So this is a gentleman, uh, Lord Curzon, for those of you who know of him, he was, uh, he's an interesting person. He's an arch imperialist. Nobody will deny this. He's, he's a leading imperial figure, uh, wants to make Britain the leading imperial power, but he's also modernizing. He believes that Britain is at risk of losing its preeminence. And if it wants to gain its preeminent position, it must become a more efficient empire. And he has this sense of Calcutta where this idea that Calcutta should not be like the cities that he knows comes through very, very clearly. The phrase that has been quoted, uh, I have quoted it earlier, some others have, is, is this one. I allude to the Calcutta smoke, which sometimes almost makes one forget that this is an Asiatic capital. So he wants the Asiatic capital to look different, feel different. He's the uh, you know, uh, viceroy and therefore that's what he wants. It also finds expression in some interesting artwork. You don't find too many examples of this, but this I found interesting. This is an imagination of a very popular medieval tower in Delhi, which is imagined as a chimney in 1913. I couldn't believe that somebody in 1913 could have this interest and could imagine it in this way. This gentleman who made this drawing was in charge of selecting the ruins that be part of New Delhi. So there are a lot of medieval ruins in Delhi. And it was his task to say which ones fitted with the new capital city that's going to be built by the British and which was aesthetically therefore more desirable. And this is one of those places that he really likes, but he also makes this as a powerhouse chimney. So that's the first thing about why smoke bothers people. It's an aesthetic question. You don't like those kind of places that are dark and grimy and you, know, you can't breathe very well. And so what you get are these laws. Again, a surprising thing when I was doing this research was how old these laws are. They are almost the same time that laws are being passed in UK, in USA, 
which is 1862-1863. Most, at least when I started my research, the idea was that things like air pollution became a matter of concern in the 1960s. But these laws were passed in 1860s, good 100 years before that. I just want you to focus on two, three things about this. First is that these laws are specifically about industry. They very clearly say, we won't consider domestic smoke, we won't consider railways, it's only about industry. Second is that it has this very curious phrase called consume or burn the smoke shall not mean consume or burn all the smoke. You know, this is a typical, some lawyer of that time must have phrased this. And the distinction is very important because what is happening there is all these mills have engineers who have been trained in India, who are going out to India to serve in these mills. Mills are owned either by, you know, in, in Bombay, the mills are owned by Indians, in Calcutta, they're owned by British. But these are engineers trained here, going out to India and working there. When these cases go to the court, all that these engineers have to do is to say, look, we are very well-trained engineers and we certify that this mill did everything that was possible to consume or burn the smoke that it is producing. Because law does not require them to burn all the smoke. Therefore, they could get away with it. So this distinction between how much you are required to, to take control of was very, very important. And therefore, it's not a surprise that at least for 40 years, nothing much happens. The law is passed, with very little prosecution, because every time something goes to the magistrate, it is seen as, did the guy try to make his best effort? The other thing is, it's a very amateur exercise. If you see how is the smoke being noticed, it's basically some person standing next to a tree saying, I was looking at this mill for three hours, and then I noticed there was very dark smoke. How do you know it was dark? Because yesterday it was not so dark. Or three days back when I saw it, it was not so dark. And this is the way, or somebody, if you're an official, you know, putting in, in, in the Raj, you're probably on a horseback, you know, going out and seeing these mills and saying, well, I have noticed that they are doing something wrong because the smoke is very dark today. So this is a very amateur exercise. It's also the first person that I've quoted here is quite clearly an Indian name. Is obviously the spelling that is there in the archive would not have been the correct spelling. His name would have been Vasudev Ramchandra. Uh, 1876, his testimony is not accepted. It's the only time I found a testimony by an Indian in this period, and it's immediately not accepted by the magistrate, saying we can't trust this guy. He's not trained. Whereas others, uh, at least the testimony is accepted. Now, whether you do something about it or not is a different matter, but they're not sent out. Similarly, you have this smoke inspector of Calcutta, one Mr. Maklu, who gets into this long tangle. This is the case that he wins. This is Empress versus J. Steen, manager, Sipor Jute Mills in 1899. This is a case where the mill is fine. But if you go through the reporting on the case, what comes through is this mill owner's uh, defense, which is time and again telling the inspector, are you qualified enough? Have you ever done this? Do you know what you're talking about? And the poor guy is like, no, I haven't quite done it. I don't quite know, you know better. And even though he wins this case, in the long run, he loses out. So then you come in these 40 years to a second aspect of smoke, which has to do with nuisance. Now, nuisance basically is saying that when I step out, my eyes are burning. 
or my clothes are getting dirty. I'm not quite yet falling sick, but something is happening that I don't quite like. And this is something that gets talked about a lot. Uh, see, it's about blackening and discoloring of buildings and public monuments, choking and destroying of vegetation, detrimental influence on animal life, a fashionable lady who sets out spotless on the ridge, reaches the yacht cup, grimy, smoky bundle, all kinds of things. They're not really saying that you're falling ill, but it's not something that you like while you're living and traveling in the city. And this is something because there's very little prosecution happening, you find a lot of reporting of this kind, which talks about this nuisance aspect. In England, the our particular concern that developed around the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, was that was it producing children who were not very bright. And so this idea, and when they lose the war in South Africa in 1903, in the Boer War, this becomes a major concern. What is smoke doing to our future citizens? Are we producing citizens who will be able to be strong and, you know, be able to fight the way in the world? Or will they become, and also crime, whether this becomes uh, something that encourages crime in the cities. And London especially is very concerned about smoke and crime. Okay. That's when this expertise that I talked about, Curzon, comes into play. So you have a very amateur tradition that develops in the late 19th century. You also have very few prosecutions. You also have the sense that smoke is not desirable, it's a nuisance. And then comes this person, and he says that if you want to tackle this issue, you will have to do it in ways that are very different. New laws will have to be framed, experts will have to be called, and only then can you make a real case. And this is another part of the exercise that's of great interest to me of how the colonial state goes from becoming a state that really valorizes the person in the field, so the officer who was in the field tackling something, to valorizing the expert. And from here on, the global state becomes, in some ways, a state which relies more and more on expertise. People who are trained in different disciplines, in the Indian case, at least 10, 12 different kinds of experts were called from agriculture to archaeology to medicine to smoke, you name it, education, all kinds of experts were going from England to India in order to build a different kind of empire. However, you also don't want to antagonize the Venolans. So he says, yes, this expert will come. He will come from England. He will write a report. But we will give this report to you also for you to consider. And so this gentleman called Frederick Grover, who was a smoke inspector of Deeds, he goes out to India. And he writes a report on Calcutta in 1904, saying what produces the smoke, what does the smoke do, and how can you mitigate it. So there are a number of sources that he lists and says that all other sources we will ignore for the time being, we'll only do industry. But he lists about five, six different sources, from steamers, from homes, from burning of coke, do all kinds of things, and then focuses on industry. He also realizes that there are health consequences. But industry cannot be stopped. And he also is of the view, along with Carson, that you can no longer rely on honest people. See, the earlier inspector that I talked about, apparently he was a very honest man. The, the people who wrote in his favor said he could not be bribed. He had a very keen eye. He could make out the difference between light smoke and dark smoke. But Robo is very clear that that kind of person is not what we need. What we need is a technical engineer 
well-trained who can serve as the inspector. And so you get this kind of law that comes in the wake of his report. His own summary, as it were, is in this line, which reads, wise legislation should not go so far as to hamper the industries of the country. At the same time, the public have a just claim to such protective measures as can secure improved conditions of life without undue interference with commercial prosperity. Now, this is a balancing game that's gone on from then to now. We can see them in judgments today. We can see them in judgments in the US, in the UK. This, this kind of balancing game, you know, you can't completely shut down industry, but at the same time, uh, public health also matters, and therefore you have to do something about it. This goes on and on. There's some very good business history of the US, which has looked at this balancing question very carefully. I don't think we have done enough work for South Asia of this kind, but I do know that there's scholarship on, in the American case, which looks at these kind of judgments very carefully. So then you come to the third aspect of sports. So we've talked about aesthetics, we've talked about nuisance, then you come to economy. Now, why is a smoke not desirable? And it's not desirable because it is a waste. So this is the third element that comes in. And waste can be of two kinds. One is, as an individual mill owner, if I'm producing too much smoke, that means my factory is not working too well, the, the stokers are not firing well, and therefore there's a lot of smoke being produced. And it's an inefficient kind of exercise that my factory at an individual level is doing. And therefore I'm losing money on the fuel that I'm using. I'm not getting the maximum out of it. This is the logic when Curzon comes back to England, Surprisingly, he doesn't talk about the Asiatic capital. He talks about this business. He says, I persuaded people in India that it made business sense to them to deal with the smoke problem. And look what a great job we did. And he's very proud of what he achieved in India. Others would dispute it. But he himself is very proud because England doesn't have a law like at that point. So he's very proud that he comes here, he addresses the parliament and says that, look, this is a great job that we did. And similarly, there's a smoke nuisance commission that will be set up, and I'll come to it in a moment, which also makes a similar argument that dense black smoke is a wastage of fuel. This is early 20th century. By the 1930s, or even in the 20s, you get a very different sense of waste. And this is very close to our concerns today, because you begin to get this sense of coal being a national resource. And the more smoke that is being produced, a vital national resource is being depleted. So this is the different sense. This is not the individual mill owner who's suffering. This is as a nation, you are depleting something which is finite. This is not driven by you know, contemporary concerns. Uh, there's a very different sense of what they're doing, but it is about coal as a national resource that must be used more wisely. And then you get the fourth concern, which is public health. This comes the last. And there is both among an emerging middle class in India and also among the British who are ruling there, this sense that you must be able to deal with the smoke, otherwise it will cause health problems. Now, again, there are conflicting views. There's one guy who's saying that somebody who can find a solution for the smoke problem should get the similar respect as somebody who can find a cure for cancer. But there's another guy who's saying that, look, if you're going to live in a town that is industry, you better be prepared for an air that is not like a village. So there are these different ways that people are trying to look at smoke. 
the most interesting debate that happens is between the different departments of the British government. So the home department wants to pass on the buck to the commerce and industry. They say, that, look, this is all about factories and smoke. You guys deal with factories, your commerce industry. You should handle this. Commerce industry says, no, this is about aesthetics. What have we got to do with aesthetics? You know, we are about industry. This should go somewhere else. Eventually, surprise of surprises, it goes to the marine department. So, you know, the different departments, no department wants to own up to this because they feel that health people say this is a commerce thing. Commerce should do it. Commerce says, no, this is something else. You should do it. And this goes on and on. The thing about public health that happens more in Bombay than in Calcutta is there's also a debate about who's in charge of this. So in Bombay, there are mill owners who are saying, we know how to run our mills. We are concerned about our workers. And we will do the best that is possible for them. And they will not suffer from smoke because they also have houses that are near these factories where there's a lot of smoke. Whereas there are other people who are saying, look, it's none of your business. You are the guys who produced the problem in the first place. This is something that the, in the public's interest, you cannot be the custodian or the guardian of something that you have produced in the first place. And this is something that hasn't quite happened so much in Calcutta because the Calcutta youth mills are, are much, much more open. You know, they have a lot more space. You don't have the same sense of overwhelming presence of smoke as you have in the Bombay mills. So this debate happens in Bombay. The other debate that happens is whose public health are we talking? So there's one sense that remains with air pollution even today, that when you say air pollution, it affects all of us. So this particular image that I'm showing is from, I think it's a 1920 sometime image. And if you look at it carefully, you'll find a gentleman in a hat smoking a pipe, there's clearly a Hindu and a Muslim figure. There's a boy, there's a woman in a sari, there's someone with a basket on his head, clearly a more working class kind of person. And then the line goes on and on. So it's conveying that when you have this cold season and you have this pollution in Calcutta, nobody's going to be able to escape it. And this is something unlike water, is very common to air. So air discourses about we are all of this today. None of us can escape this. Of course, then the air purifiers come, and things come, the air conditioning comes. That's a different story. But there is that assumption that everybody will be affected. But there are moments when you get this recognition that not everyone is affected alike. So do women have to do more labor? If things are getting blackened in their homes, if, if the clothing is getting blackened, if the, if the utensils are getting blackened because of smoke, you have a movement in the US, which is called municipal housekeeping, a lot of women come out and protest against the smoke as part of a duty that the municipality should have done but has not done. And therefore, it's a household affair for them and they must respond. You don't have the similar thing in India, but you get a sense of it from time to time. The other sense that you get is inside factories, workers are to blame. If they smoke, that means they, have, they haven't done a good job. Outside in their homes, they're seen as poor people who suffer. So sometimes there's sympathy for them. Sometimes there's no sympathy for them. But there is a sense that smoke does not affect everyone alive, which you get from time to time. So you get these four concerns. Smoke is nuisance, smoke for aesthetic reasons, smoke for economic reasons, smoke for health reasons. 
The reason I go through this exercise is to say that there's nothing self-evident about it, even about smoke. And there are different reasons why you could be interested in it. This is important to understand because there's sometimes an assumption that air pollution is a problem for which there can be one solution. And what is that solution? So that if you get hyper-technical, then you reduce the complexity of it to only one concern and then look for that silver bullet that can address that concern. Because I'm suggesting that there are many ways and many reasons why people can be interested or affected by these things. And each one demands a different kind of. So that's the first stage. You have these four different perspectives on smoke, economic, health, nuisance, aesthetics. You have this law that has been passed for Calcutta and Bombay, a law that doesn't work very well. And you have this attempt by Curzon to bring in experts modernize the whole thing. This expert that produces a report, as I said, and on the basis of that report, you get this thing called Smoke Nuisances Commission. It's an interesting thing because you don't get it either in the UK or in the USA. Smoke in England and America remains a municipal concern. It does not go out of the municipality. In India, the British don't trust the municipality neither for their technical expertise, nor for their social relations. So the municipalities are never empowered. What instead what you do is set up these kinds of commissions. The other reason for setting this up is industry is protesting that we want to have a say in this. So on this commission, there are representatives of industry, no representative workers, no other representative, even the health representative is kicked out saying, look, this is an engineering issue. This is not a health issue. You watch from the outside. If you feel something is going wrong, you let us know, but you cannot be part of this. And there's a huge debate when this health person is kicked out only to be brought back in the 1930s. You get this Bengal Smoke Nuisance Act, you get a Bombay Smoke Nuisance Act. The Bengal Act has in popular parlance many originary stories. One of the originary stories was that you have this beautiful white marble Queen Victoria Memorial in Calcutta and whether this would get spoiled by the smoke. So the law was passed to protect this. This is one, uh, something I love. This isn't quite why the law was passed, but maybe it saved that. You also get professional inspectors. This gentleman, Jay Robson, who becomes the inspector for Calcutta, eventually goes on to be awarded the Kazare Hind Medal, which is the highest medal that the government, of, uh, that the then colonial government could give to one of its employees. His work is widely recognized. He remains the smoke inspector of Calcutta for 25 years and more. So he's somebody who gains a lot of prominence. The scientific observation, which is the other recommendation that Grover had made, and this observation is through these charts. This is no longer on the horseback. These are these charts that are called Ringelman charts. Basically, they are these squares, and you hang this, and you watch the smoke, and you see match the darkness, and then there are various formulas about how much darkness is indicative of what. This Ringelmann charts are very popular. They are used in Germany, they're used in England, they're used in India, everywhere. This becomes the standard way of, of measuring smoke. But what do you do then after you have measured? There's one option which was to go and prosecute. If smoke by law of a certain density cannot be produced for more than X minutes, then if you've broken the law, you could be punished. But that's not how law works, neither in England nor in India. 
The idea is that you must be an advisor to the industry. You're not there to prosecute. They're not bad people. They're doing a good job. You are an engineer, go and advise them. You must have their cooperation. It's all built on we are going to help each other realize the best possible outcome. It's going to be non-antagonistic and very few prosecutions therefore will happen. So they offer advice about chimneys, about how to fire, laws are made, warnings served, fines imposed sometimes. But most critically, the engineer is no longer to be blamed. It's only the worker who's blamed. That if they smoke, something is wrong with the worker. In fact, they'd make a desperate attempt to set up classes for these firemen, stokers, both in Qatar and Bombay. Nobody comes to these classes. They want them to give them certificates that you're a qualified stoker. They get one or two a year and they eventually close down that plant because nobody's willing. That certificate has no value. So nobody's willing to invest in it. But they refrain from providing technical design. Now, this is very important because in air pollution debates, this has been part of a long debate. Is it the business of governments to tell you what to do? Or is it to set up the standards and leave it up to you what you're going to do? So, for instance, in contemporary times in India, we have this major debate on fuel for public transport. And the government said particular fuel, which is compressed natural gas, must be used instead of diesel. And there's a lot of you and pride. It's not the business of government to tell us what fuel to use. Just tell us what standards to achieve and leave it to the industry to find the technical means for it. So there's a reason why this debate about whether the authorities are going to provide the design or not becomes very important. At this point, they refrain in the early years from providing the design. Refrain is for a very simple reason. That if I provide the design and it fails, then what do I do? You know, I was the one who provided the design and it failed. So you don't do it. And then you come to these inter-warriors. This is when gradually these commissions say, no, we are going to make the plants. We are going to design these chimneys and furnaces in our office. We'll charge you a fee for it. And you have to make them as per our plans. So there's a shift in that regard. There's also something very important that happens is you get very good combustion engines. Combustion engines means very much less smoke is getting produced. In fact, it's produced so little according to these inspectors, that they say we have found a solution to the problem. There is no smoke problem. By the 1930s, they have declared victory. That this is over, the game is over, we have to shift somewhere else. Now come where else they want to shift. The other thing that they do is let's have electricity. Because electricity means you're going to have clean energy at the point of delivery. So it's going to be generated somewhere else in the world. In this case, in Calcutta, there's a coal field at Rani Ganj. Uh, a place called Rani Gun, which is a bit distant from Calcutta. And in the case of Bombay's hydroelectric power that the Tatas have invested in. And the idea is that electricity will provide clean energy and you won't have the smoke problem. So let's invest in electricity. And the third is that you have scientific research on these questions. These begin in the late 1830s. But as I said, there are no environmental standards that are set. It's only how much have you reduced per hour. There's no external standard against which you measure it. As with everything else, there are contested claims. Some people say that we have done a great job. The commissions feel they have done a great job. Many people feel that there's much more to be done. The reason why this commission thing becomes important is if you have declared victory, that we have tackled industrial smoke, so what will you do? You move to something else. In this case, there are two other things that they move to. 
One is smoke being produced on the street. So there's this poor man, you know, the two different images of how to light this fire, one that produces smoke, the other that does not produce smoke. And so this is smoke on the street that they want to take care of. And the other is smoke at home. There are no laws that cover this. So they have to do something else. And the smoke at home is a very interesting one because I've called it urban and domestic because there's a concern that the fuel being used inside homes and the way that cooking is done in Indian homes, especially among poorer people, produces a lot of smoke. The woman who's cooking suffers a lot from that smoke. So there is that recognition from fairly early on, 1890s, early 20th century, you get this recognition. There's also a recognition post-World War I when there are a lot of investigations into the conditions of working class housing, that smoke is a problem inside these houses. The reason being that there's no kitchen. There's a room in which five workers live and probably three of them are cooking altogether. So there's going to be a lot of smoke. So there is a recognition of a domestic issue, but that's not the issue that bothers the smoke commission. The commission is bothered about the smoke that comes out from these homes onto the streets, because that's where it affects the public. So then it becomes an urban issue. It's not a domestic issue. And in this, an argument is made that Indian homes are very different from English homes. Indian homes don't have chimneys. And therefore the smoke is coming very close to the ground. Therefore its effect is going to be even worse. And there is a great need to work with smoke in the Indian context. So, this is the basically this, this understanding that we have done with industrial smoke. Let's shift our focus to homes and try and do something there. What do you do? You're back to the same solution. Let's use gas solids. Well, these are clean fuels, unlike burning coal inside homes or burning biomass to cook your food. Gas and electricity, if you're interested, have a global war as to who's going to have greater say in the market. From what I know and understand, gas wins the kitchen market, for the cooking, and electricity wins the lighting and heating. So there's a lot of uh, industrial stake in these things as to what kind of business is going to provide the solution for these issues. And both gas and electricity compete everywhere in the world to get the most number of consumers. This has to do with pricing, it has to do with availability, a lot of different things. And gas and electricity, therefore, and in several courses that I've given, you'll see this idea that electricity that has been used to power something else, say plants, something else, can also be used to serve similar functions inside homes. And therefore, this is the solution that's going to work best. Of course, there are only so many homes that can have it. In the time that we're talking about 1930s and 40s, so only the newer apartments that are coming up in Bombay and Calcutta can have some design that allows for electricity to come in. But most homes find it extremely difficult for this source of energy to come into homes. What does come in for cooking is gas. And this is an interesting story that I've partly written about, partly want to write much more about, is the introduction of gas for cooking is not only about your health, it's also about producing the modern world. And the way in which this modern woman is going to be produced is she's going to be hygienic, she's going to take care of the family, 
She's going to cook food that is not smoky and the health of her children will be protected. The production of this modern woman inside the kitchen is a very interesting field of study. I've seen some very interesting stuff in Japan, for instance, where from the time that you sit on the floor and, and cook on the floor to the time that you stand up is a big transition when you're cooking on a platform. So there are these very interesting other stories which we lose sight of if you're only doing the technical part of what is smoke and how you do it. So these are these different uh, advertisements for gas uh, that I randomly picked up. You know, the last one is very interesting. I don't know how clear you can say is why live like villagers. You've got electricity and gas. You are no longer a villager. You're a modern urban woman and you will live life very different. So this is where the story in the colonial period ends. From industry, there's a shift towards domestic and urban issues, and neither of them, if you look at the record, has been tackled very well, though of course there are different people who make claims that they have done a good job of it, etc. But the problem remains very much part of what the post-colonial state will inherit. And then it will have this debate. And this is a quote that I picked up Again, a very random quote that I picked up, which makes a distinction between different kinds of environmental problems that you should be concerned about. And if you read this quote very carefully, it says, are we going to be concerned about water supply, water treatment, sewage disposal, and sanitation? Assuming these are all linked to poverty. Or do you want to spend large resources on managing industrial and radioactive waste, as do similar bodies in the affluent world? So there is a sense that not all environmental issues have the same balance. Depending on what your economy is, what your income is, there are some issues that are more important than others. And clearly, in the opinion of this person, things like industrial waste are not of the same quality as water supply and water treatment. And then you have a very famous speech by Indira Gandhi, who was then Prime Minister of India at a conference in Stockholm in 1972. Uh, the speech became very famous for what kind of reasons, one of which was she is probably the only head of state who was addressing that conference. It's the first UN conference on sustainable development and found a lot of press because she was the only head of state and made this a statement that's been repeated at least in India and some parts of the world also, which has been interpreted and misinterpreted several times when she asked, is of poverty being the greatest polluter? Now, there are different versions of what she actually said what she meant, but it's something that there's a trade-off between development and environment that becomes part of the rhetoric of how the state is going to operate in the 1970s. And this part I'll go through very quickly. So what you have post-Stockholm, these laws being passed as they had been passed earlier. In India, the first law is the water law that comes in 1970. Then you have an air pollution law that comes in 1981. And again, like several such laws, they don't work very well. And very quickly, there's a recognition that these laws and the bodies that have produced the pollution control boards, they lack the money, they lack the technical staff, they lack the manpower to do a very good job of it. And because of this, something interesting happens that I want to quickly jump into and, and then you know, wind up in about five, seven minutes. And this is what I call the constitutional turn. Now, this is a very interesting moment in India where the right to clean environment is being guaranteed by the Supreme Court of India. 
the highest vote of the land. And it says that you have a right to life, which includes a right to clean environment. Now, this is a very, very radical statement because actually people who are going to demand this as a fundamental right, then it's going to be very difficult for anyone to be able to provide it. But this is a rhetoric that's coming, coming for about 20 years now, that this is a fundamental right guaranteed by the Constitution of India to which every Indian has a right, right to clean air, clean water, etc. Again, very quickly, what I want to do with this is, this has again been seen by several scholars as a one single issue, which is that the courts getting into the business of managing air pollution. Some find it good, some don't find it good. I have a slightly different interest in this, is what is being debated in these cases. And again, like the earlier time when I told you that there were at least four different ways in which you could look at smoke, I'm suggesting there are at least four different issues that you can look at in the contemporary when it comes to pollution. So first, this is about particulate matter and the concern. First is industrial pollution. Simple case, factories produce pollution. What do you do with factories? Send them somewhere else. This is classic government act in many parts of the world. At an international level, send them to some other country. You know, dirty production goes somewhere else. Basically, you don't do it in your backyard. That's the simple solution. We have industrial pollution. There's a famous court case that happens. And industry that is considered hazardous and polluting is asked to move out of the city. Several cities in this world have cleaned themselves up by taking this strategy. Today, Delhi, Beijing, many other cities are trying to say, basically push your dirty industries out somewhere else. This one about vehicles is very different because what do you do with the vehicles? You can't throw them out like the industries. So you want your vehicle in the city. And so you have this debate about what kind of fuel to be used, whether it's diesel, whether it's compressed natural gas, whether it's uh, uh, you know ultra refined something, there's a lot of debate, and I, from what I understand, there's a lot of debate in this country also about whether diesel cars are good for you or not good for you, etc. And that goes on and on. There's a lot of scientific uncertainty around it. So these judgments have to deal with that complexity and scientific uncertainty that goes around vehicle pollution. And what is clear is, uh, you know, the law and politics always precedes scientific consensus. So in, in an older time, you could imagine that scientists will get together in a room produce a consensus report, governments will act. But today's governments have to act very differently. The science is somewhere. It will eventually produce a consensus, but you have to take your decision prior to that consensus being produced. It's a very different ballgame that's happening today. The third is a case of firecrackers. Uh, this is interesting because some parents went to the Supreme Court on behalf of the children saying bursting of firecrackers causes smoke. And this air pollution, while there are other sources also, this one is especially one because there is uh, especially dangerous for children and therefore must be stopped. And now the courts find themselves in a knot trying to figure out, is this essential to religious practice or not? So this is a freedom of religion question that crops up. Is the bursting of firecrackers part of the Hindu religion of Vivad? And they go on. Some judges say yes, some say no, some say it's not essential. But this is a third kind of issue that this is a very familiar strategy again adopted in many parts of the world that you use your waste to produce energy. It's happening in, in Africa, it's happening in Asia. Waste to energy plants are part of the clean development mechanism. 
and money comes through this. Delhi is at the moment contemplating God knows how many such plants, 20 to 25 such plants to be built. Problem with these plants is that the energy is produced, yes, but along with that, dioxins are produced, which have huge health impacts. So what you do is you exchange one kind of problem, which is a waste problem, for another kind of problem, which has to do with dioxins. And there's a lot of struggle going on in Delhi at the moment by residents who are affected by such plants, who don't want such plants in the neighborhoods. So again, as you can see that these different cases have slightly different angles to them. All of them are about air pollution, all of them about health, all of them are about right to life, but each one highlights a different kind of concern. And so that's what I feel one needs to do. Interestingly, we are also back to a moment which is different from climate, because now we are talking climate change. And one of the things I want to track is what is the difference between being engaged with climate and being engaged with climate change. And this is a long trajectory of over 100 years, 200 years that, that I'm trying to track. So now, of course, you know, these heat waves, etc., are making a lot of news in many parts of the world. In India, there's a great deal of concern about what it will do to outdoor labor, what it will do to health. And again, I want to go back to older concerns about climate that I began with and see how do you read off these things? Because it can't simply be, oh, there was climate then and climate now. But this is climate change after the prospect of air conditioning. This is not the same as before. Now you have mechanical means of handling this. And therefore, what is the debate about now? And finally, you have this thing that we have all become very, very familiar with. What does the entry of germs and viruses into our sense of the air that we breathe in or breathe out does to our sense of air? Now, the reason I've called this atmospheres, and this is where I'll conclude, is for a long part, for a long time, the debate within people who studied air was about the material side of it, the particles, what constitutes what kind of air, what is good air, scientific literature on air. But there's also a debate that has emerged, which has to do with what does this air do to us? What does it do to our moods? What does it do to our ways in which we think and live? There's a whole phenomenological side to it that has become very, very important. And I think what we saw with COVID is not only the health side of it, but also ways in which people responded to ideas of stigma, frontline workers being stigmatized, fears of different kinds being generated. So there are different ways in which we live and work with the quality of air around us. And what I'm also beginning to get interested in is not only in terms of what the laws and regulations were, which is the story that I narrated to you, but also what it does to our sensibilities. What is that to our social relations? What does it do to our physical? Yeah, because, you know, Southeast Asia is full of people with masks even today. And it was people who were walking around with masks even much before COVID. But that's not true for the rest of the world. So what explains these differences? So that's the kind of story that I now want to get into. But as I said, Therefore, to think about atmospheres is to think about several things, is to think about several different social dimensions of it, and also to think about how our own lives are shaped by the quality of air that we imagine to be around us. That's what I'm trying to do, and thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the German Historical Institute London podcast. Follow us on social media and check our website to keep up to date with new episodes.